I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kaurna people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Today, we look at nanotechnology. What is it? What's interesting in that nanotechnology at the moment? And what's it like to test a new technology on animals and then humans? To get some insights, Cosmos journalist Ellen Fidian talks to Professor Ben Eggleton, the director of the University of Sydney Nano Institute and co-director of the New South Wales Smart Sensing Network. So, Ben, what is nanotechnology? Yeah, yeah look, a great question. Um, I would answer by actually reflecting on the fact that nanotechnology is a relatively new construct, if you like. Um, on the one hand, of course, materials are based on molecules. Um, been around since the beginning of the universe, but the notion of nanotechnology goes back to a really famous after-dinner speech that Richard Feynman gave um, in the 1960s. Um, very preeminent Caltech physicist who coined this uh, concept of nanotechnology, and he basically said there's plenty of room at the bottom. And what he was sort of invoking was the idea that uh, by building uh, functional devices uh, based on individual molecules, you can construct devices. And so I think nanotechnology, the essence of nanotechnology, is not just that you're prizing things out of small particles, molecules, because that's what, as I said, it's been around since the origins of the universe, but it's a notion that you can construct useful devices, functionalities. Um, so if you take two strands of DNA lying on a substrate, that's not a nanotechnology as such, but if you actually bring them together and weave them into some type of um, motor or building block, all of a sudden you have a useful component, maybe the building blocks of a nanorobot. And that's the essence of nanotechnology. And so that that idea goes back uh, again before we had men walking around the moon, but it took many decades for nanotechnology to really uh, become mainstream. And we have seen over the last 10 to 20 years a real exponential increase in uh, nanotechnology development through a lot of investment in the infrastructure and capabilities, particularly in Australia. I think it's really interesting that like we, whenever we talk about tech, our instinct is to go bigger, faster, taller, but it's as if not more difficult to work with smaller things. Yeah, well, it is. In fact, and we also like to say we, we want to go greener and there's a nice sort of connection between nanotechnology and, and green world but indeed it is ironic and often this is pointed out by my colleagues that I'm sitting in this fabulous large expensive building uh, that is a state-of-the-art nanotechnology building um, but really um, it's a building that houses people who do research in nanotechnology and um, it means the building has to be very stable to mechanical vibrations um, and so we're built into the side of a hill um, it has to be um, a building in which the laboratories are incredibly stable, temperature, humidity, uh, that airflow is handled uh, well so that there are no um, air currents that uh, interfere with experiments. And we also have to be concerned about electromagnetic interference. So many of the labs have built into them um, shielding that actively compensates for electric and magnetic fields induced, for example, by the railway line at Redfern. And so it's our location um, being a mile from a railway line into the side of a hill, as I mentioned, that means the building's performance and specifications 
uh, for nanotechnology research were absolutely exquisite. And I'd like to say the best in the world. That's really cool. It's um, You're obviously at the Sydney Nano Institute. The CSIRO is concerned about a new train in Melbourne that's going to be interfering with their electron microscopes as well. That's a similar problem, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. In fact, um, the Sydney Nanoscience Hub was modelled on a number of nanoscience buildings around the world. So we're pretty confident that when I say it's the best in the world, we actually know who we're competing against. And one of the really impressive buildings, it's in downtown Boston at Harvard, Centre for Nanoscale Science. And indeed, a uh, very similar design uh, that they have in their basement, some really uh, heroic electron microscopes that can only operate from two in the morning because they're right downtown near a subway. Oh, so it is interesting. And because we are uh, quite a distance from a subway in a main road, we have these absolutely exquisite aberration corrected microscopes that can resolve individual atom uh, in um, a disordered media. And that happens to be in the, the corner of the building below me where you are right up into the side of the hill away, away from a lift and therefore mechanically, electromagnetically isolated uh, from everything. And you're in these rooms that are like squash courts where the real estate, I think, as one of my colleagues, Professor Michael Biersick, said, is the most real expensive real estate in Sydney. I guess you might have already answered that, but what's exciting you the most about nanotechnology research in Australia at the moment? Yeah, well, look, nanotechnology research is taking off uh, globally. Um, and it is, on the one hand, sounds quite uh, blue sky to many people. But, you know, I look at two examples that are pretty real world. On the one hand, most of us have been injected with the Pfizer vaccine. Would it be surprising to you that the messenger RNA that's delivered into your blood and that uh, injects the, um, the the vaccine into the cells and creates that immune system is embedded in a lipid nanoparticle that is 50 to 100 nanometers. And that lipid nanoparticle, it's a wonderful example of nanotechnology because this has been designed, uh, the chemistry, the mechanics of this lipid nanoparticle has been optimised by scientists to um, survive and do its job. And a great example of nanotechnology that everyone can relate to. The other example, of course, I, I think is microelectronics. I mean, your smartphone, if you crack it open and look inside, pull out the microchip, put it under a really good microscope, an electron microscope, you'll see that the feature size of the smallest gate, the smallest component is of order 10 nanometers. So you're walking around with nanotechnology in your hand. And that means that the chip has probably many billions of components, which is why you've got this amazing, uh, super fast computer in your hand. So those are two uh, real world examples. I think if I kind of build on those, it's fair to say nanotechnology research, as I mentioned, multidisciplinary, we work across the entire university. We bring researchers together uh, into large scale teams to address many of the world's grand challenges. I think the kind of big areas that we are working uh, in on the one hand is in the nanomedicine. I just referred to the Pfizer vaccine and the idea that you can um, create these lipid nanoparticles. Well, I can um, create um, multifunctional nanoparticles that not only can deliver medication into the into the blood, but actually can introduce functionality. So I might be able to construct, believe it or not, a nanorobot that is comprised of um, DNA um, self-assembled to create some basic functionality that can travel through your blood to perform specific tasks. So nanomedicine is, I think, one of the real frontiers where we're seeing heroic achievements at the cellular level to treat disease 
whether it's in the context of treating Parkinson's disease, respiratory disease, cancer, uh, using uh, advances in nanotechnology. And I think that's an area where the University of Sydney Nano Institute is really um, going to be demonstrating over the next phase some significant breakthroughs. I think it's fair to say in building on the narrative around um, microchips, quantum computing and entanglement of uh, particles at that nanoscale is an area that Australia is punching well above its weight. In the, in the city of Sydney, of course, we've seen significant investment from the corporate world, companies like Microsoft that sponsor the University of Sydney's quantum computing initiative, which is arguably about a third of the building that I'm sitting in is sponsored by Microsoft and they're uh, working towards uh, scalable quantum computer. You've got federal government investment uh, here at the University of Sydney and elsewhere in the city of Sydney. We've got the Sydney Quantum Academy, which is uh, providing uh, a really exciting uh, network and ecosystem to drive industry. I think the other example is that, and I alluded to this earlier, we are seeing nanotechnologies playing a vital role in sustainability and energy diversity. Um, and so we have, as an institute, always um, used the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals as strategic pillars to drive and guide our research flagships. Nanotechnology plays a key role in catalysis research, which is the basis of hydrogen. And we know about the hydrogen economy, which is a really exciting area of uh, renewable technology. Um, we know that nanotechnology plays a key role in the context of new solar cells that generate um, energy from the sun. And of course, we've got the concept of solar fuels, which goes back to the, the narrative around hydrogen. So we see nanotechnology playing a key role there. And then more generally, I think what is really fascinating is that nanotechnology talks to materials that rely on nanostructure to create um, strength, resilience. And so would it surprise you that in, and this is ironic because the building behind me fabulous nanotechnology building. It's not a green building at all. In terms of the energy, the embedded energy involved in its construction, it's outrageous. And the energy involved in its operation, extraordinary. I mean, I just like to think that in the long term, it's paying for itself through the innovations. Um, but the construction industry itself is a significant contributor to greenhouse emission. But the good news is there's a lot of good research on the horizon, particularly around nanomaterials, composites, smart surfaces, uh, sensor devices that are leading to real innovations in how we build green materials and green buildings that are much more sustainable. And, uh, you know, examples of smart surfaces, envelopes that wrap around the building that suck water and energy out of the atmosphere to sustain the building. Um, sensors that mean that the building itself is going to be dynamic and aware of its um, external and internal environment. I mean, there are some really intriguing concepts there even that relate to COVID transmissibility that we start to think of smart buildings that have smart ventilation and smart sensors to not only make the building green, um, net zero emission, but also safe and healthy for its occupants. I think there's nanotechnology in the context of aerospace and defence is my final one. So um, as it relates to materials that are stronger and lighter, um, as it relates to the kind of emerging space industry that Australia is, is really driving. I was at the launch of the National Industry Space Hub last week and we've got a nascent, I wouldn't even call it nascent, a growing 
uh, space ecosystem. Um, and of course, with respect to getting things into space, nanotechnology is all about size, weight, and power, uh, an acronym that in that context is referred to as SWAP. So the ability to miniaturize um, hardware, sensors, compute uh, devices, radar uh, on space-borne um, applications is really compelling. And you're doing all of this by manipulating molecules to do jobs. Yeah, and not always at the level of individual molecules, but mm-hmm. much of our business here in the Sydney Nanosites Hub relies on what's called lithography. A lithography is a term that comes from the Greek. It means literally putting patterns into stone, so lithograph. But what we're doing here in the clean rooms below me, we're printing patterns at the nanoscale into silicon, and it's those patterns that are the basis of nanoscale devices, sensors, and it's those microchips that might include photonic uh, components that are are replacing some of the kind of conventional hardware. And so, indeed, um, whether it's at the level of molecules or at the level of the nanoscale, we're able to shrink these devices by many orders of magnitude. That's really cool. You've recently been working on a low electronics radar. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so we've had a, a, my own group at the University of Sydney had a recent breakthrough that we reported what was referred to as photonic radar. And it's confusing to some because I think photonic, that means it's um, radar based on light waves, but actually we call that LIDAR. Photonic radar is a, a different concept. We're actually um, using traditional radar with microwaves. Um, in fact, the photonic radar is particularly powerful at very high frequencies um, where electronic systems have a hard time. And so the focus of our photonic radar is to generate radio waves at very high frequencies, so 50 gigahertz or even higher, where we can create very large bandwidth of radio waves that has the ability to resolve very fine features. So it turns out that when you have very high bandwidth radio waves, you can see, for example, remotely uh, the fine features of a drone, or even you can map out someone's shape. And we've been able to demonstrate in principle that we can resolve the vital signs of someone remotely. So we can see someone's breathing because the radio wave bounces off the skin. And so we have pivoted this technology from what was initially focused on tracking drones outside to vital sign detection of humans or animals because we realize with this photonic radar, we can actually resolve the fine features associated with someone breathing. The radar wave bounces off their skin. Now, the photonics that we use is very simply to avoid the requirement for high-speed electronics. And so rather than high-speed signal generators that are expensive and bulky, we use light waves to create this very broadband radio wave. So at the end of the day, we've got this very agile broadband radio transmit receive that can resolve very fine spatial features of a human, including their vital signs, without the requirement of any high-speed electronics. And that's significant because it means that maybe we can build this into a hospital or into someone's smartphone or into some low-cost applications where this might provide some extra degree of freedom in terms of monitoring people in aged care homes, forecasting deteriorating health, for example. So obviously, if you're hoping to use it in hospitals and aged care homes, you need to uh, show that it's safe to use in people. Can you talk me through the process of doing that? Yeah, so that's right. And so we've presented this and we've patented this, it's worth noting, in 
we are looking at commercializing this technology. We'd love to spin off a company. And of course, when we discuss the technology with investors, their first question, which is the obvious question, is have we tested this on human trials? And which we'd love to be able to do. Um, but of course, testing this on humans is, is complicated and it requires careful considerations of ethics. And there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy built around it. So our hypothesis was to test this on an animal. Mm-hmm. We thought uh, naively that, for example, if we used, and we'd seen this in a publication from another group, that they had uh, tested a similar radar concept on a bullfrog. Turns out that a bullfrog is a good proxy for a human. They're heavy breathers, uh, it turns out. So you put the bullfrog in a That's plastic great. little perspex box and you hit this frog uh, with a radar wave and you're sort of wanting to see if you could separate the regular breathing of the frog from background noise. Now, that sounded relatively simple. Well, it turns out um, the ethics approvals process for bullfrog or a cane toad, as it happens to be, <laughs> is as complicated as the ethics uh, process for a human. Um, and, of course, we take the ethics uh, process at the university very seriously. When you lose of your course. job, you get into big trouble. Um, and so it's just an amusing story that we have now for the last six months been negotiating with various uh, groups and partners with the support of the wonderful people in the animal ethics group to identify a, a relatively painless way, painless for the humans, Painless also for the frog because we don't want the frog <laughs> to suffer. Of course. Um, through this experiment. And we're finally, uh, I think we've identified a way to bring the cane toad, which of course is a nuisance and a pest in New South Wales. So the last thing we want to have happen is that the cane toad get, escapes and runs wild and starts up a new cane toad colony in the city of Sydney. Of course. But we're there and the student is downstairs constructing the uh, said experiment with a perspex box and we hope to do that in the next month and um that would be an exciting proof concept and i think that would set us up for the next phase wonderful um do you have anything else you'd like to add uh no i think look it's an exciting time to be working uh in multidisciplinary research and mission directed research Uh, i think nanotechnology is is a great enabler because it does span across all of the disciplines i really enjoy working across science engineering health and medicine but also with the social scientists, um, because we're not only interested in the discovery and the fundamental research, but the translation of the research into real-world outcomes. And we need to think about the governance, the societal impact, the ethics, the legal frameworks around some of these technologies as we take them uh, forward. So all of the research that we're doing is relevant to our current world, particularly around environment, climate change, jobs, manufacturing, sovereign industry, defence and aerospace. Well, thank you very much for that, Ben. Yep, so good. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you'll also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. 
I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast presenter was Ellen Fidian. Thank you 